It's a great joy to have all my family, 30 of you or so, here today, except for two in Malaysia. That's pretty special. I want to thank the Lord for that. The Lord is good, extremely good to us in that way. And it's real nice to have Charles and Lucille Price, people that we used to know many years ago up in Michigan when we were both missionary pastors in Galilean Baptist churches. Great times. I want to talk to you about the second coming of Christ. I want to address the modern idea that it, that his coming is in two parts or two stages. I'd like to take us to the scriptures and take a look at what the Bible says about his coming. And perhaps we can come up with the correct answer for our own souls and for uh, those who have different ideas. The issue is not, will Christ return and appear the second time? So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. We believe that he will come a second time. That's not the issue. My issue is not with the thought, will he raise the dead and change those who are living, who are his elect? And take them to be with himself. That's not the issue. I'm not addressing that. And the issue is not with the word rapture. The the word rapture does not appear in the Bible. But the thought is there. And while the word rapture means to catch away or snatch away. We'll allow the word to be used in that regard. For the Lord Jesus Christ will come. And catch away. Those of us who are living at that time. And he will raise those who are believers. Who are this. Redeemed people who have been buried. My question is, and my issue is today, is there a double coming of Christ yet in the future? Is there a rapture when the Lord comes in the air, which which has been said to be secret, invisible, and silent? And then sometime after that, And various ideas are given as to how long, quite often the idea is seven years, will he come in a revelation when everyone will see him and he will then address judgment to the unsaved in particular. This idea of a split coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, a two-stage coming, is of recent origin. It will not be found in any historical documents before 1830, which is only 175 years ago or so. It's new. It's a novel idea. It's of recent uh, origin. I think we can say it began with a, a preacher in the Church of Scotland named Edward Irving and a member of his church, Margaret MacDonald, who was a young lady. It is reported that she had a vision or an encounter with spiritual powers in some way in which she spoke of a secret rapture of the Lord Jesus, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for saints. This preacher was followed by John Darby, who was a very uh, skilled, a spokesman, 
He translated the Bible. He came to the United States during the 1800s and preached on six different occasions, both here and in Canada, and spread this new idea of a secret, a silent, invisible coming of Christ for the saints. He was followed by Charles Henry McIntosh. And perhaps you've seen, if you if you read Bible literature, you'll see the initials CHM. That stands for Charles, Charles Henry McIntosh. He spread the idea. William Blackstone, in a book entitled Jesus is Coming, also had a great deal to do with spreading this in the late 1800s. Many copies of this book were distributed to preachers across the country, and many people followed it. But probably the most influential event in this idea of a split coming of Christ, a two-stage coming, falls upon the shoulders of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, who produced the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. That's just about 100 years ago. That Bible has is a good Bible in the sense it's a King James Version. But Mr. Schofield has added his notes and his ideas on many pages, and that became a textbook in many Bible schools and seminaries in past generations. I'm not, I can't speak for the seminaries today, but I can. When I was there, it was a popular book. The ideas that were in it were popularly taught to all ministerial students, I being one of them. That's what I was taught. That's what I believed for many years. And I have to say, I taught it also. I'll teach something different today. I hope you'll look in the scriptures with me and see where some things were rested and changed. There were some big names who believed this and then repudiated it. Oswell J. Smith was one of those. Uh, Philip Murrell is another. G. Campbell Morgan. These are great names. Many books written by these men. They believed it, and they changed their mind. I'm going to read you the testimony of one of these men. Notice what he has to say about believing this and how he felt about it. It is mortifying to remember that I not only held and taught these novelties myself, but that I even enjoyed a complacent sense of superiority because thereof, and regarded with feelings of pity and contempt those who had not received the new light and were unacquainted with this up-to-date method of rightly dividing the word of truth. The time came when the inconsistencies and self-contradictions of the system itself, and above all, the impossibility of reconciling its main positions with the plain statements of the word of God became so glaringly evident that I could not do otherwise than to renounce it. Thank you, Lord, for honesty. Philip Morrow wrote that, said that. Is the Lord's coming going to be secret? Silent and invisible. There's a lot of people who think so. I'm going to read you a couple of excerpts of some who have said that. 
His appearance in the clouds will be veiled to the human eye, and no one will see him. He will slip in, slip out, move in to get his jewels, and slip out as under the cover of night. Another, quickly and invisibly, unperceived by the world, the Lord will come as a thief in the night and catch away his waiting saints. Another, the rapture will be a secret appearing, and only the believers will know about it. Another, in the rapture, only the Christians see him. It's a mystery, a secret. And another, it will be a secret rapture, quiet, noiseless, sudden as the step of a thief in the night. All the world will know, all that the world will know will be that multitudes at once have gone. There's five examples, and there could be many, many more multiplied. That that's our common belief today, which is being widely circulated and popularized by the Left Behind series and others, films, and books like that. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, please? Every chapter in this book mentions the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word coming is there. Chapter 1, verse 10. The Apostle Paul is commending this church for their conversion to truth based on his preaching to them. And he's saying to them, I should read verses 9 and 10. For they themselves, that is, neighbors to this church, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, waiting for his Son from heaven. I confess the word coming is not in the verse, but they're looking for him. Chapter 2, the last verse, verse 19. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And the answer is obviously, yes, they are in his coming. Chapter 3, verse 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4, verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Chapter 5, verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some will say, but perhaps this is different from the day of the Lord coming. Let's go to chapter 5 now in verse 1. But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. 
For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. There's no question here but what the day of the Lord and these comings which we have read about are the same. Because these people were not going to be caught by surprise, Paul tells them. Looking back at chapter 4, this is verses 13 through 18 are probably the most referenced place in the Bible when it comes to people referring to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to read the whole section, beginning with verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. It is apparent, based on this verse, that some of the saints at Thessalonica had died, there had been burials, and the people were raising the question, what about those who have died? What happens when the Lord comes, when the second coming takes place? And so Paul's answering that is what I believe. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And surely those families who had lost some loved ones, where there had been burials and funeral, funerals and burials, would find comfort to know dying now before the Lord comes is not going to be any problem. He's going to raise that body, reunite it with that spirit that will come with him, and the living will be changed. In this passage, is Christ coming invisible? The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Amen. Is his second coming in this passage silent? How many things are there? A trump? Voice the archangel? And a shout. Are you going to be shouting if you're there? I think I will be. I hope you will be. Silent? No, not very silent. Will it be secret? The Lord himself will be there. There's going to be three loud sounds that we are told about. How many more? I don't know. The dead are going to be raised, and we're going to meet the Lord. 
that's hardly secret, silent, or invisible. And yet this passage is one of the passages many times turned to, and then the statements are made that contradict it. It's amazing. Let's look at a few more passages that speak about the Lord's return, his second coming. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Acts 1, 9 through 11. The Lord Jesus Christ is resurrected. He has met with his disciples in Jerusalem. It is departure day for him to go back to heaven. Verse 9. And when he had spoken these words, these sayings, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. How did Jesus leave his disciples? Was he in a real body? Was he visible? All right. He was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. How will he come? He'll come in clouds, do you think? He went away in clouds. Come in like manner. In like manner. Visible. Personal. Very real. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Amen. What does Christ come with here? Something that's being repeated, isn't it? Clouds, all right. Who sees him? And not just that. Finish the the statement. They also which pierced him. Amen. This isn't very secret. This isn't very silent either. What results from this coming, at this coming? Wailing. Nations are going to wail. This is not the believers. These are not the Lord's people. This is the rest of the world. The unbelievers, the ungodly. Fearful and wailing at that point in time. If we turned elsewhere to Revelation chapter 20, we find out that this might be called the the great white throne judgment. No question about it. Turn back a few pages. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The emphasis in this chapter is upon ungodly men. This is what they face. They face the judgment of God upon the earth and all that's 
all that pertains to it. And so we have here the judgment by fire. What day is this verse about? The day of the Lord. We met that phrase before. How does it come about? As a thief in the night. Time unknown. So when we, when we speak about the Lord's second coming, we can say, yes, it's secret. It's secret because we don't know the time. Amen. Not that it's going to be invisible. Not that it's going to be silent. But we don't know the time of it. And so it's proper we can speak of it as being secret in that sense. But secret in not being revealed? No, it's quite revealed. The Lord wants us to know the details. Amen. Is there any sound at this coming? This day of the Lord? A great noise. Don't miss it. It's there. Don't allow somebody to steal that from you. And and, and concoct an idea that there's a split coming. What's the result here? The emphasis here is not upon the Lord's people being brought to him, but the emphasis is upon those who are left in judgment. So what happens to them? What happens to the world? The elements shall be burned up. The earth and the works therein. And those who are not the Lord's people, not in the book of life, cast into the lake of fire. In other passage. Turn back to the Gospel of John, please. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Lord Jesus Christ explaining about his coming and resurrection of people who have died. Marvel not at this. John five twenty-eight. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Whose voice is responsible for this resurrection? The voice of the Son of Man. Our Lord Jesus Christ. How many who are in the graves will answer his voice? All. All. You say, well, maybe that's just all believers. Well, let's go on then. If you, if you want to raise that question, we'll find our answer. What two classes of people are going to be raised? Doers of good and the doers of evil. All right. There's two classes here. The doers of good and the doers of evil. What's the result of those two classes? Where do they go? What do they face? Those who are doers of good face what? The resurrection of what? Life. The others? The resurrection of? Damnation. It's difficult in my judgment, in my mind, and my looking at these simple verses, to find two stages in the Lord's second coming. I find that there's a coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as he has explained here, he will, his voice will raise the dead. And in other passages, we realize that those who are living will be changed and will meet the Lord in the air. Amen. It's a great and glorious fact. We look forward to it. Amen. We believe it. We'll have to say that the rapture theory is an idea, a theory, and a misinterpretation of plain scripture. Let's look at two warnings or two exhortations, one from John and one from Paul. Let's look at 
1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 for an exhortation in the light of these precious truths. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, and we do, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. Here's a mark of whether or not you're saved, to use that term. Do you do, you do righteousness? Do you love righteousness? Right. Abide in him that we be not ashamed at his coming. Can there be shame? Can we have regrets? I think the inference here is strongly that we can. Let's not have it happen. Let's walk with him now. And let's look at Paul's exhortation in Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, 13 and 14. I like to start with verse 11. It's a great verse. We glory in it. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Don't we love that? We thank God for that. I trust you do. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things teach and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Looking for. And if we're going to be looking for, then let's remember, he wants us to be purified, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. May that be our desire and our heart's wish. Even as we think about the closing words of the New Testament, the last chapter, almost the last words are, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.